From Hanover, New Hampshire, I'm Lee Coffin, Dartmouth's Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid, and this is the Admissions Beat. I think one of the most annoying questions a student gets during a college search is, so what's your major? The answer should be, I don't know. I'm not in college yet. But it is a question that bounces around a search from the beginning all the way through the end and ultimately at the beginning of the school year. When you finally arrive on campus and people start saying, what's your major? You don't have a major until the spring of your sophomore year on most campuses, like the one where I work. But that question is actually still an important one. You don't need to know what your major will be, but you do need to be thinking about program. And I talk a lot about the three Ps, program, place, people. Um, Program is the mother question. It is the essence of where you go to college. What will I study? How will I study it? Do I have the flexibility to move between departments, majors, minors, as I discover things that interest me? I I remember going to college way back when thinking I was an English major, and I took a history class, which is not a big leap from English, but a very different course of study. And that first semester class was a survey of American history from colonial to civil war, had the most dynamic professor or teacher that I had encountered, I was hooked. And so in high school, I wasn't thinking Lee would be a history major. That's what I chose and have never regretted that course of study because ultimately it's what made me happy and what got me out of bed in the morning to go to class and to do my research and to write my papers. So to help you think about this, whether you are a senior in the last days of decision-making leading up to your big enrollment decision on May 1, or you're a junior and you're just starting to explore and to think about what, what might I like to be? Am I a word person? Am I more of a numbers person? Am I logical? Am I creative? Am I a little bit of all those things? And what are these majors and programs that I've never heard of? Um, My high school didn't teach me linguistics or anthropology or geography, or maybe they did teach geography, but not in the way we do at Dartmouth. And you have this curriculum in front of you as something to explore, scratch your curiosity, try something unexpected. Sometimes the best courses you will take as a college student are your electives or a course someone says, just try this. It's way outside of your comfort zone, but that's what makes it exciting. And so to help you think about that, whether you're seniors or juniors or parents, this week in an encore episode from my original podcast, The Search, I invite three members of Dartmouth's faculty, one from engineering, one from philosophy, and one from government to join me to think about what they teach what you might study, 
and to share some thoughts about how one of them studied physics and ended up a professor of philosophy. How do you go from here to there as you follow your curiosity and your intellectual engagement? It's not just the GPA. It's what you study, what makes you ask thoughtful questions, what makes you raise your hand and say, I have an idea, dot, dot, dot. We'll be right back. Let's say hello to Alexis Abramson, who is a professor of engineering and dean of our Thayer School of Engineering. Hi, Alexis. Hi. Nice to Glad see to be you. Here. Uh, Lisa Valdez is professor of government and Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Lee. Nice to be here. And Sam Levy is a professor of philosophy. And he is also the Associate Dean of the Arts and Humanities at Dartmouth. So hi, Sam. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Let's get in the time machine and go backwards to start. So I'm going to bring us all back to your senior year of high school, wherever that was. You know, as members of the faculty, as college professors, I think it'd be interesting to see where you each started. So when you were in high school applying to college, you know, did, Alexis, did you know you were on your way to being an engineer? Lisa, were you always wired to go into government? Um, are you a politician, by the way, because you have a degree in government? Sam, when did philosophy come onto your radar? So I won't call on you, but who wants to, who wants to jump in first and, and talk about the young version of your intellectual self? I'm happy to jump in here, Lee. Thanks, Alexis. Uh, okay. <laughs> So um, I, I was good at math and science, as you kind of hear sometimes when somebody says, oh, I want to be an engineer, and that is a path one could go toward. But I also really enjoyed my, my other classes. And so when I was looking for a college, I wanted to make sure I didn't go to an engineering school that you know was more solely focused on engineering. I wanted to go to a broad school where I could take the philosophy classes and the history classes and really try and bring those classes together for a fuller experience while at the same time preparing me to, to be that engineer. So I went to Tufts University as an undergrad sort of because I was looking for that, that mix. But I think even today when we think about, you know, do I wanna be an engineer? or not, you know, the students don't necessarily have to be great at math and science, and they don't necessarily have to know they want to be an engineer. And, and really, it's okay to think about it and kind of decide once you get there, um, which path makes sense for you. That's really helpful. But as a kind of the kernel of your college search, once upon a time, was this interest in math and science. So you even, even then, that part of your high school curriculum was tickling you in a way that made you say, hey, this could be what I study. Exactly. And I was very focused on getting a job and doing something very applied. So it was sort of part of who I was and who I wanted to be. Um, and so engineering kind of seemed to fit sort of that personality that I had. Okay, that's helpful. And where did you go to high school? So I went to a public high school in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, a large public high school, um, very diverse public high school in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. So. Uh, yeah grew up through that school system and, and had a really great math and science experience there too, which is always helpful if you want okay, to. Okay, that's, 
Terrific. Feel good Lisa. about who you are. Yeah, yeah, and, and go that direction. So thanks, thanks, Alexis. Lisa, what what's uh, what's Junior Lisa thinking? <laughs> so I grew up in the Washington D.C. area, and politics is always kind of part of my family, part of what it was like to grow up there. Um, and so I think I never really questioned that politics was something I was interested in. That said. Uh, as a college senior, I applied to college early. I got in early and I thought I'm done. And I completely kind of stopped thinking about intellectual endeavors. Um, and I didn't give any thought to what I was going to be studying in college whatsoever. Wow. So that's like, you know, I hear you say that I'm smiling at the idea that a, a, a Ivy League professor um, just kind of shared that that insight about like you know you kind of took your foot off the gas pedal a little bit at the end of high school and you still got on track but you so you went into college where you you had a political focus kind of as part of your kind of sounds like part of your DNA but were, did you go in thinking I'm pre-law or I'm going to study poli-sci or, or are you just saying let's see what happens so I did take a political science class my first term in college. Um, it was a really, really, it was a notoriously difficult class. And then I also took a class on uh, East Asian politics and East Asian history. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And my freshman year, I was absolutely determined that I was gonna study Japanese and I was gonna be a, a scholar of, of Japanese politics. And that lasted until the end of my freshman year. Um, and, and then I decided I was gonna major in politics. Um, at the same time, when I was at college, I um, did a lot of modern dance. That was kind of my, I would say it's my extracurricular activity, but we, you know, that was also for course credit. And it was something that was very, very important to me. It was something I had never done before. I happened randomly on a modern dance class and it was just like, oh, this is where I'm meant to be. And it was a really important part of my experience there. When I look back, I regret that I did not um, really uh, commit to that to the same level that I committed to my, my major in politics, um, because I just didn't really think that that was possible to do or that it was okay to do. Um, and now I know, you know, yeah, it's absolutely okay to do both of those things or one or the other. And I would have learned just as much from whatever choice that I would have made at that time. Great, thank you. Sam. Uh, so I, I grew up in a small town in Maine, Winthrop, Maine, and went to a small public high school there. And I was through my senior year, and I think through many years of college, just dreaming my way through I had uh, lots of interests, no particular focus on what I thought I would study, but there were topics that I was subjects that I was quite interested in just to find out about. And in my senior year, about the same time that I was having to decide where to apply, and then as the acceptances were coming through where to go, I was involved in a science project where I was in the basement of my house, uh, putting lasers together to make holograms which was something, a path of discoveries completely out of nowhere. And I remember the day downstairs where it worked and you know we produced the film and then a hologram was there, it was visible, you could see the thing. And thinking maybe this work on optics and lasers combined with interest that I had in physics would lead me into study of physics. Uh, the other thing I really liked in high school at that time, I had a class with a charismatic 
teacher in a psychology course. So I went off to college thinking I would probably try to double major in physics and in psychology, but not with a particularly strong view about what the degree would mean or what it would do. I just thought those are two things that I like and colleges have them. So I ended up going to the University of Colorado at Boulder, which was in every way exciting and thrilling and big compared to the tiny town I'd been in. But it was quite some time uh, before my academic pursuits actually uh, sort of straightened up and, and took me to where I ended up, which was a major in philosophy, which is what I've continued to study since then. And even that I would say was only partly academic intellectual path. It was my first term in college and I had the standard intro science-ish, you know, sampling widely kind of curriculum where 8 a.m. was calculus, 9 a.m. was physics, 11 a.m. was psychology, 1 p.m. was philosophy and maybe French later in the afternoon. And those eight and 9 a.m. courses didn't agree with me as much. I mean, I loved the content and did fine, but it was sort of hard to be sharp in the morning. And that 1 p.m. time slot was pretty agreeable. Uh, and I had a very charismatic professor. I didn't know what philosophy was, had never heard of it really. And I had a very charismatic professor, uh, Wesley Morrison, who would hang around after class and shoot the breeze with you know three or four or five students. And of course, it was very discussion intensive courses, philosophy classes tend to be. And I thought, this looks like a pretty good thing, this faculty gig. You know, we get to have this exciting discussion in class and then hang around and it just keeps going. Felt a little boundaryless and felt like open discovery and inquiry. And I just kept kind of taking philosophy classes while I was checking out other stuff. So for each step in this, for me, it's been sort of chance encounters with individuals who were doing stuff that I found interesting and just pulled me along. I was not somebody who arrived, who left high school or arrived in college uh, with a plan. I had ideas, but that was about it. Well, and what's interesting too, just, you know, if you go to the very high level, like, you know, Alexis engineering, Sam philosophy, we'll get to Lisa in a sec, um, that like you've got these specialties hiding below that kind of major word. But what's interesting about Sam's story, you know, as someone who started out thinking physics and psych and doing, you know, making lasers dance around his basement is now a philosopher and the Dean of the humanities, but there's mathematics hiding in your discipline that may not be just the word philosophy to a lot of people. May not, you might not think like, oh, there's, there's a math basis here. You're talking about logic and mathematics. And, you know, that, that charismatic faculty member, Sam, was my experience as well. I, it was my first semester and I was taking a survey, U.S. history through the Civil War, of course, a big lecture. And the prof, Jack Chatfield was the professor and he was the most charismatic, dynamic, lecture, you know, 300 people in this auditorium, but he was on fire three times a week. And I caught myself saying, this is so different than any U.S. history course I have ever taken. And it was a survey course, so it wasn't even a specific topic. But I ended up taking him three times um, over my undergraduate experience and became a history major in the same way all of you have said, like something presented itself and my interest shifted um, once I got to college, it wasn't, a, I was thinking English. That wasn't a huge leap from where I was to where I ended up. But, you know, I think that moment of particularly during the first year is this really important moment when you 
you take this toolkit from high school, which is you're a good student, you know how to study, you know how to be attentive and write papers, and then your brain starts to open and you get to wander and wonder as you meet the curriculum. So do you think, you know, what advice would you give admitted students right now? So they're, they're at the penultimate moment of their college search. Like they may have already enrolled, they're about to enroll, they're going to start picking classes soon. Like what's, what's your, as faculty members, what would you hope they're thinking about as they wrestle with this question of what will I major in? Is it too soon for them to be asking that question? I actually think that, you know, we, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Lee, we ask students, what is your intended major? And we kind of prime them to think that way. And so by the time um, many of them come to university, they have a plan. Mm -hmm. And I, when I advise first year students, my tactic is always to try to get them to think outside of the plan and to put the plan aside and to take something that is just speaking to them in some way, to try to move them toward that serendipitous class that might change their life. Um, and so I think one piece of advice I would have would be to, you know, I think it's great to acknowledge, like, here's what you're interested in and here's what you're thinking, um, but be willing to um, set that aside and not worry so much about, you know, thinking from your freshman year to your first job, which I think a lot of our students are thinking, and I think many of their parents are thinking, um, that college is an incredibly, uh, college courses are incredibly precious commodities. And you only get, here you get 35 of them. And um, each one uh, is, is something you don't wanna take because it's part of this kind of, uh, I'm gonna say march toward a, a particular end. Um, but I like the idea of a path and a, and a way to get lost in um, intellectual endeavor. I mean, that's, that's a really exciting thing. And it's really exciting um, to be with students on that path. I like that idea of each course is a precious resource, you know, and you because it's easy to lose track of the idea of college and the macro, that there are these little units 35 of them in the Dartmouth example, which are course by course, and they add up to a degree and they add up to a major um, very pragmatically, but each one is this little discovery. Let me ask a kind of a, just a existential question. You know, so high school students have teachers and then they come to college and they have professors. What's the difference? I, I'll, I'll jump in from the engineering perspective at least. Um, so, right, the professors that are typically in front of our students have spent years and years studying a, a relevant field, a field relevant to engineering in, in our particular case, and obviously, you know, relevant to the fields of study that students are enrolling in classes, right, in those departments, right, they've, they've spent years and years of their lives studying these very specific uh, fields. And so they're, they're bringing to the experience of the course, uh, this knowledge that really nobody else on earth will bring. And there's a real specialness to that, right? So for, in engineering, you know, my background is energy efficiency and buildings and, and, you know, how to mitigate climate change. And so I come with my own unique perspective built on years of doing work in the laboratory, 
uh, experimental work on materials to save the world's uh, climate change problem um, and looking at using data analytics to solve problems to help us change what we're doing in our buildings uh, to, to use less energy, things like that. And so when I teach a course, even on thermodynamics, which is a sort of a fundamental engineering course, I can bring these real world examples in that are relevant to today, that are relevant to sort of cutting edge technologies and understanding of the world around us. And so it adds this layer of depth um, and breadth to what might be thought of as like, oh, a thermodynamics course, you just crack a textbook open. It's not the case. It, at the university level, you're bringing this additional um, experience to the classroom that those students on the other side hopefully are experiencing in that way and, and, and can appreciate the depth and the richness of the topic much more than what you would, you would typically get from a textbook and you would likely get in comparison to a high school class on a similar topic. In this professor construct, you are teachers and you are scholars, you are, you are researchers, you are pursuing new knowledge. Can you give me an example of how one informs the other? Like how your scholarship has translated into a course you're offering? So my last book was on the UN uh, Treaty on Women's Rights and why the United States has not ratified that treaty and our history of US engagement on that issue. And it was a new topic for me. I had never uh, done research on the United States. Um, this was a new realm of the United Nations and international organizations and uh, human rights issues. And I started the project, I started the research by teaching a seminar on it. And it, that was a little risky, but I, I was at a point where um, I, I was willing to do that and ready to do that. So the students and I learned together. Um, what are the questions? What does the research say? Kind of what is, the, what is that knowledge um, that Sam had talked about earlier? Uh, and then I was able to kind of get some feedback from them and they could also see the process of what it is to start research, right? When I didn't really have a clear sense of where that was gonna take me or even if this was a, a viable topic. Um, and then I was able to, as the project progressed, teach that seminar every year. And that ongoing conversation with my students and the process of like, here's the research as far as I know it, here's a, here's a chapter that I wrote, what do you think? I remember one student saying to me, she had read one of my draft chapters and she said, Professor Valdez, I don't really hear your voice in this. And it was like such an awesome moment. She was absolutely right. Um, and, and so that process of, of working with my students as more as colleagues, um, it, it made the research sharper because I had to articulate what I was doing to an audience. And it also, um, I was able to learn from them, from their feedback, from the brilliant questions that they asked that I would not have considered. Um, you know, what was worth pursuing. So it was a really uh, mutual process. There was no boundary between teaching and research on that project, and it was incredibly valuable. Well, Lee, I think I can answer that question in a, in a few different ways. I mean, I've, I've taught uh, a class, a seminar style class on, on climate change. And I think to have sort of a scientist and a practical sort of focused engineer 
sort of engaged in a seminar style class is a really great opportunity, right? Um, it's not something that your, your typical engineering school necessarily engages in, but to have that opportunity at Dartmouth and, and some other institutions to do that, it, it, it's, it's a good experience, I think, for the faculty member and the students. So, um, so I can kind of bring to that seminar style class sort of that more practical side of things, right? So it's not just about the impact of climate change on, um, on our world and uh, the, the different populations in our world that are being affected by it more and more today and, and will be more in the future, but it's about what can we really do about it, right? What are the technologies and the solutions um, that we can bring to the table? And so being able to go into that seminar style class and explain what nuclear energy is, for example, and, um, and, to, and, and to give the students sort of this toolbox of, you know, beyond the, the social science understanding um, that climate change is going to have, give them an understanding of really how does a solar cell work and how does nuclear power work and why aren't we saving more energy in buildings and, and those practical sort of that practical piece is, is really important. Professor Levy. Yeah, I have similar experiences. Uh, I think teaching material that I do in the philosophy courses that I teach through the history. And it's often the case that trying to figure out how to deliver that material, the ideas in the classroom requires me to go back to the historical text and read them very carefully. And I realized fairly early on that trying to figure out the best way to pitch this to students broke open the conversation for me in ways that I didn't understand what I was seeing in the texts until I needed to explain it uh, in a classroom. And the students, just like Lisa was saying, ask these terrific questions. I think, oh, right, now I understand. I'm seeing connections I hadn't seen before. So there's some nice road testing that happens in talking to students. And I, I think I'll build on that if I can a little. Um, so th there are other ways when students say, I want to, oh, I want to go somewhere to do research, or I might want to go somewhere and do research. It, there are other ways to get exposure to these topics. So one thing that I always see students maybe not taking advantage of enough is some of these more extracurricular, co-curricular type opportunities, speakers on campus. Take advantage of those things, as Lisa was saying, right, to expand your horizons and try some things out. And then if you really do kind of get interested in a particular topic, there are at many institutions opportunities to then go that next mile and, and, and link up with a professor or there might be a program at a university specifically for undergraduates to do research seek out that program, apply to that program. Sometimes there's funds to pay you for research. Sometimes you can get course credit for it. So try and you know reach out, navigate that process. And then ultimately, if it's something that you uh, really seem to connect with, a topic you really seem to connect with, then you'll hopefully have that opportunity to go deeper. Well, across all three of your scholarly areas, you know, you're, you're practitioners in some way. I mean, you're taking these ideas from your fields and you're applying them, whether it's directly in policy, but you're doing research. And that feels like, you know, for students in high school thinking about program, like where do I go to college? Who's going to teach me? Um, you know, a lot of students I meet um, talk about 
this interest in doing research on their own or with you. And um, so as you each, you know, think about that, like what advice do you have for high school students around thinking about research in an undergraduate space? So, you know, some places will be more open to it than others, but what's, where do they, how can they know that this is a place where that's possible? So I, I think one thing we tell students is, you know, do study what you're passionate about. Study what you're, you know, really passionate about. But a lot of students don't really know what they're passionate about. Like, I'm passionate about, you know, fantasy football. Um, I'm passionate about hanging out with my friends. Um, that was certainly my case in high school. But I think another way to ask that question is, what are you curious about? You know, what, what kind of stokes your interest? You read something in the paper, you hear about something in the news, you, you read a novel. What do you want to know more about? And that is a way of thinking about, you know, what, how you might go from where you are now to thinking about um, engaging in academic research. Um, another little dirty secret about research, often research is really boring, right? So it might be, you know, copying and pasting numbers from one document into a spreadsheet. It might mean, you know, um, sifting through long documents, looking for particular mentions of topics, right? And it's, uh, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds, thousands of pages um, that you do that or, or writing programs uh, for, uh, to figure out certain problems. Um, and I think that's part of the process of doing research. It's, it sounds, maybe I'm overstepping here, but it's, maybe it sounds glamorous to people and it is, and it's exciting, but there are also parts of it that are really, um, uh, it require a little bit more discipline and focus. And I think that's, um, I think I, I'm happy to introduce that to students and kind of share all parts of that uh, process with them. So you come to a college website and it is an avalanche of information. So, you know, I'm a student who's thinking, yeah, I'm broadly interested in the humanities. I'm trying to figure out what that means. And I land on the Dartmouth website. Um, and maybe this is a mom or dad also helping kind of guide a college search. Like what resources do faculty have on your departmental pages or your personal pages that you see as useful? I think in my own experience, it was the class, the courses that took me in to find the faculty and got me embedded in different ways in mentoring relationships. So I don't know that seeing so much what a faculty member is working on for their research would be the first point of entry because oftentimes there's a pretty big distance between what you're prepared to talk about and what the faculty member is writing about. But with the faculty member is teaching, that's pretty close contact. Finding your way into a space like that, I think there are lots of different paths. But for me, talking to the faculty and just following my curiosity got me into a conversation where then someone can take you to that next step. And then things become very clear rapidly. Like, oh, this is what we're up to. This is what we're trying to do. So what, let's imagine someone's listening to this conversation and this feels intimidating. How, like for those of us who might be a little less confident out of the gate, um, you know, as, the, as we meet the curriculum and then we meet you, you know, does that make sense? I mean, have you seen students kind of hesitate on, on the inbound moment and lack the confidence to, kind of seize the moment? Yeah, I, I think uh, certainly uh, you hope as a professor that your students feel comfortable enough, maybe because they've taken a class with you, 
um, or they've talked to some of their peers that they feel comfortable enough reaching out, sending that email um, or coming to office hours. And, and I think really just knowing that we as professors expect that of our students. We love when our students come to office hours. So don't be afraid, please do take advantage of that opportunity to go and have that one-on-one -on -one conversation, be it about questions you have in the class or questions you just wanna ask them about the research that they're doing or the sabbatical they took last year that you read an article about. So, um, you know, we're as professors really welcoming of students coming and talking to us, so. So they got in, they've chosen a college, they're now first years um, and they're picking courses and there's this thing called office hours. And for a lot of students, particularly in the selective realm of college admission where you know the admit rate was tight and they got in and they might be wondering how the hell did I get in? And um, they're used to getting A's because that was the motivating force through high school to get them into the college of their dreams. And, and now they, maybe they get a B. I remember getting, I'll go back to Jack Chatfield, my history professor. I got a C on my first test in his course. And I never got a, I never got anything less than an A in high school. And I remember being crushed by the C on that exam. And I, I did go to office hours to see him and with my blue book, you know, for those parents who remember the blue books. And I said, what did I do wrong? And he flipped through and he said, you did nothing wrong. He said, you just didn't, you answered all the questions correctly. You just didn't expand on them to the degree you needed to. And coming out of my public high school, the, I, no one ever taught me expository writing. So, you know, it was this really interesting recalibration. Where I thought, he said, you're smart. You just have to go a little more deeply on the answers to these questions. And then psh, off I went. But the, I think a lot of us have that moment when we get to college where the A's are a little harder to earn or there's this pressure to still earn an A. So like what, what advice do you give to high school seniors around that transition from being a high achieving high school student to being one of many high achieving students in an entering class? Like what do you see in your classrooms that you're advising work? So my first grade in college was a D, oh. <laughs> um, equally shocking. And so I know what that's like. And I have lots of experiences that I am pretty open with about my, with my students to say like, look, you know, here's my experience. And, and we know that failure is essential to learning. You, you have to fail in order to really learn something. Some colleges and some professors are kind of trying to incorporate that into pedagogy and to build in like low stakes quizzes and low stakes um, uh, tests so that you can fail and learn from that and still do well in the class. Um, but that is, a, it is a very real thing. And I think um, that that fear of failure uh, for a lot of students um, can be crippling. Um, but that said, exactly what you did, Lee, is just to ask, like, tell me what happened to, tell me here, tell me what you saw um, that led you to this grade um, or these set of comments. Um, th that's a, it's a high threshold in terms of confidence to be able to do that. But that's where you're going to learn and kind of go somewhere different from where you were before. Otherwise, walking away from that or not inquiring is, is failing to, to avail yourself of a really amazing opportunity. Yeah, I think that, that 
that the sting of that first college grade is 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 um, you feel it. I remember going back to my room and feeling like, oh God, I really. I mean, I, my my poignant story that I will often tell. I was in a I had a seminar, freshman seminar. It was on politics, was oral communications, and people were talking about Plato, and I had not read Plato's Republic in high school and, you know, listened to the conversation about why are they talking about Play-Doh? I thought like the toy that kids had. And I didn't realize it was like, it was a, you know, <laughs> something that my high school just didn't include in its curriculum. And I had this moment of like feeling like, God, how did I get in? And why don't I know what they all know? And that was a cold shower for me as kind of the you know, a, a kid coming out of my not so fancy public high school where I was big man on campus and, and you know, president of the National Honor Society. And all of a sudden I was like, okay. Um, but the moral of this story I'm sharing is I, I had the skills. I mean, the college admission officer who took me said like the ingredients were there. I just needed to, to teach myself a different way to learn. Like what got me through high school um, was still germane, but in this new environment, I had to rearrange how I understood being a good student. Now, okay, like office hours were part of that, or jumping way ahead of my syllabus, or going to the library every night and, and reading and buying a highlighter and highlighting things in books. Like these were study skills that my public high school didn't teach me, and you have to learn how to swim in a different stream. Yeah, you know, I think when I talk to some high school students, right, they, I'll simplify it uh, a bit by saying, oh, college is just another four years that it's just like high school, but it's harder. And that's not it at all, right? It's, it's this opportunity um, to really expand your horizons and go into depth and breadth that you wouldn't normally go into. And, and Lee, your example of taking that extra step to really investigate that topic um, from a unique perspective you had never thought about before. I think about when I was an undergrad and I was a mechanical engineering major, but you know, as I said earlier, I wanted to take these other courses and, and I had a couple of good friends who were not engineering majors and we took this history of women class together. And, you know, which I was interested in and we had to write an essay on the history of women. And, and I decided, well, I'm gonna take an engineer's approach to this. And I talked about how the history of women is like an undamped oscillator. And so I wrote my whole paper on that. And I spent hours and hours and hours versus my two friends who were, you know, I, one was a history major in fact, and you know, they did it the night before, of course. And they got A's and I got a B plus and it was like devastating to me that, but I also at the same time really understood that like, look, this, this isn't my strength. And really I learned so much by taking this sort of unique dive into things that maybe was untraditional, right? <laughs> unconventional in a sense um, and, and broaden my horizons in, in a certain way. And I got a good grade, don't get me wrong. Although I was a little bitter that they, <laughs> They didn't spend much time and got a better grade. But um, and so it's really about the experience in college. And and I know it's easier said than done. Like grades don't matter as much. I mean, they do. I get it. 
but at the same time when you look back years from now it's it's those experiences where you really kind of went outside your comfort zone which might have meant you got a, a lower grade but it's those experiences that really kind of help you become the person that you will become and, and are so meaningful in the end post-enrollment pre-matriculation it's time to start picking courses uh, would you advise students to stretch outside their comfort zone for at least one of those three, four, five slots? Like, you know, instead of saying I'm pre-med and loading up all on that, uh, like what's the virtue of popping outside of what you think you want to study and landing in a course like the history of women as a mechanical engineer and saying, oh, this has pushed me into a very different intellectual space than the one that feels organic. I'm gonna answer that by sharing something I hear from seniors a lot. Um, they, by the time many of our students are seniors, they've completed their major requirements, they've completed their distribution requirements, they've completed their pre-health requirements if they're doing that or they're close. And so they're like, okay, now I can take the courses I really want to take, which I think is not how I would recommend doing it, but we, they often find themselves there. And then they take a class because they like have been really curious about this class. And they're like, oh, I wish I'd taken this class earlier. And it's okay, right? They took the class. It doesn't matter that they, they're not gonna major in that thing, that it's still valuable to them. Um, but I hear that so often. And I wish for those students that they had taken that class their freshman year. And it would have put them, maybe it wouldn't have put them on a different path. Maybe they wouldn't have appreciated it at that time. They wouldn't have gained as much. They needed to do all they did. And I, I kind of feel like um, I'm going to suggest what you suggested, Lee, to students. I'm going to keep doing that. I've been doing it my whole academic career. I'd say probably, um, I'm guessing maybe 5% of students actually take me up on it. Um, and the ones who do usually report back. But ultimately, every class you take, every path you're on, you're gonna learn something. Even if you think, oh, that class was terrible. If you reflect on, well, what was so terrible about it? You know, and, and you can learn from that experience too. So, so I, don't, I don't think there's any wrong way to do it, um, but I, I do wanna have students avoid that feeling of regret um, for having waited on something that they loved. A lot of students think a major is a through line to a career. Yeah. Is that true or false? Oh yeah, I'd say half the students I see coming in first year, they think you major in X because you wanna become or do X later. I think it's just, for me, I mean, apart from trying to get into a PhD program, just the opposite. It's like, let your profession drill that knowledge into you, do something to construct yourself, whatever it is between now and then. I think engineering is a little bit of the exception. You can major in engineering and do follow whatever career you, you'd like to follow. I believe in that, but it is hard to not, if you don't major in engineering, then to become an engineer, right? right? So, so there, there is that complexity there um, uh, that yes, maybe takes a little bit of forethought ahead of time. But you know, about 50% of our graduating students in engineering did not necessarily know they wanted to major in engineering when they got to Dartmouth. And so it's really worth exploring that further to sort of 
sort of decide what excites you and let that be the driver for sure of, of where you take your major and minor. There is no data on this has shown there is very little statistical correlation in terms of your major and the career that you end up doing. People for whom their major in college does link to what they're doing at professionally tends to be academics, right? Mm -hmm. So the very people advising undergraduates are kind of the exception to the rule in a lot of cases. I hope this conversation with our three professors has your wheels turning as you continue to ponder and wonder what you might study. So next week, as April continues its merry march towards the National Candidates Reply Date, we will bring three first-year students to the mic to help you think about what you discover during your first year of college. Like what are the ahas that animate your freshman year that may not be on your mind as you wrap up your senior year of high school. Till then, this is Lee Coffin from Dartmouth College. Thanks for listening. Thank you.